Isis Audiobooks presents an unabridged recording of Night Watch, written by Terry Pratchett, read by Stephen Briggs. Sam Vimes sighed when he heard the scream, but he finished shaving before he did anything about it. Then he put his jacket on and strolled out into the wonderful late spring morning. Birds sang in the trees, bees buzzed in the blossom. The sky was hazy, though, and thunderheads on the horizon threatened rain later. But for now, the air was hot and heavy. And in the old cesspit behind the gardener's shed, a young man was treading water. Well, treading, anyway. Vimes stood back a little way and lit a cigar. It probably wouldn't be a good idea to employ a naked flame any nearer to the pit. The fall from the shed roof had broken the crust. "'Good morning,' he said cheerfully. "'Good morning, Your Grace,' said the industrious treadler. The voice was higher pitched than Vimes expected, and he realised that, most unusually, the young man in the pit was in fact a young woman. It wasn't entirely unexpected. The Assassin's Guild was aware that women were at least equal to their brothers when it came to inventive killing, but it nevertheless changed the situation somewhat. "'I don't believe we've met,' said Vimes, "'although I see you know who I am. You are—' "'Wiggs, sir,' said the swimmer. "'Jocasta Wiggs. Honoured to meet you, Your Grace.' "'Wiggs, eh?' said Vimes. "'Famous family in the Guild. Uh, "'Sir will do, by the way. "'I think I once broke your father's leg.' "'Yes, sir. He asked to be remembered to you,' said Jocasta. "'You're a bit young to be sent on this contract, aren't you?' said Vimes. "'Not a contract, sir,' said Jocasta, still paddling. "'Come now, Miss Wiggs. The price on my head is at least—' "'The Guild Council put it in abeyance, sir,' said the patient swimmer. "'You're off the register. They're not accepting contracts on you at present.' "'Good grief. Why not?' "'Couldn't say, sir,' said Miss Wiggs. Her patient struggles had brought her to the edge of the pit, and now she was finding that the brickwork was in very good repair, quite slippery, and offered no handholds. Vimes knew this, because he'd spent several hours one afternoon carefully arranging that this should be so. "'So why were you sent, then?' "'Miss Band sent me as an exercise,' said Jocasta. "'I say, these bricks really are jolly tricky, aren't they?' "'Yes,' said Vimes, "'they are.' "'Have you been rude to Miss Band lately, upset her in any way?' "'Oh, no, Your Grace, but she did say I was getting overconfident "'and would benefit from some advanced fieldwork.' "'Ah, I see.' "'Vimes tried to recall Miss Alice Band, "'one of the Assassin's Guild's stricter teachers. "'She was, he'd heard, very hot on practical lessons. "'So, she sent you to kill me, then?' he said. "'No, sir, it's an exercise. I don't even have any crossbow bolts. I just had to find a spot where I could get you in my sights and then report back.' "'She'd believe you?' "'Of course, sir,' said Jocasta, looking rather hurt. "'Guild honour, sir.' Vimes took a deep breath. "'You see, Miss Wiggs, quite a few of your chums have tried to kill me at home in recent years. As you might expect, I take a dim view of this.' "'Easy to see why, sir,' said Jocasta in the voice of one who knows that their only hope of escaping from their present predicament is reliant on the goodwill of another person who has no pressing reason to have any. "'And so you'd be amazed at the traps there are around the place,' Vimes went on. "'Some of them are pretty cunning, even if I say it myself. "'I certainly never expected the tiles on the shed to shift like that, sir.' "'They're on greased rails,' said Vimes. "'Well done, sir.' "'And quite a few of the traps drop you into something deadly,' said Vimes.' "'Lucky for me that I fell into this one, eh, sir?' 
Oh, that one's deadly too, said Vimes. Eventually deadly, he sighed. He really wanted to discourage this sort of thing, but they'd put him off the register. It wasn't that he'd liked being shot at by hooded figures in the temporary employ of his many and varied enemies, but he'd always looked at it as some kind of vote of confidence. It showed that he was annoying the rich and arrogant people who ought to be annoyed. Besides, the Assassin's Guild was easy to outwit. They had strict rules, which they followed quite honourably, and this was fine by Vimes, who in certain practical areas had no rules whatsoever. Off the register, eh? The only other person not on it any more, it was rumoured, was Lord Vetinari, the patrician. The assassins understood the political game in the city better than anyone, and if they took you off the register, it was because they felt your departure would not only spoil the game, but also smash the board. "'I'd be jolly grateful if you could pull me out, sir,' said Jocasta. "'What? Oh, yes, sorry, I got clean clothes on,' said Vimes. "'But when I get back to the house, I'll tell the butler to come down here with a ladder. How about that?' "'Thank you very much, sir. Nice to have met you, sir.' Vimes strolled back to the house. Off the register. Was he allowed to appeal? Perhaps they thought... The scent rolled over him. He looked up. Overhead, a lilac tree was in bloom. He stared. "'Damn, damn, damn!' Every year he forgot. Well, no, he never forgot... He just put the memories away like old silverware he didn't want to tarnish. And every year they came back sharp and sparkling and stabbed him in the heart. And on today of all days. He reached up and his hands trembled as he grasped a bloom and gently broke the stem. He sniffed at it. He stood for a moment, staring at nothing. And then he carried the sprig of lilac carefully back up to his dressing room. Willikins had prepared the official uniform for today... Sam Vimes stared at it blankly and then remembered. Watch, committee, right. The battered old breastplate wouldn't do, would it? Not for his grace the Duke of Ankh, commander of the city watch, Sir Samuel Vimes. Lord Vetinari had been very definite about that blasted. Blasted all the more because, unfortunately, Sam Vimes could see the point. He hated the official uniform, but he represented a bit more than just himself these days. Sam Vimes had been able to turn up for meetings in grubby armour, and even Sir Samuel Vimes could generally contrive to find a way to stay in street uniform at all times. But a duke... well, a duke needed a bit of polish. A duke couldn't have the arse hanging out of his trousers when meeting foreign diplomats. Actually, even plain old Sam Vimes had never had the arse hanging out of his trousers either, but no one would have actually started a war if he had. The plain old Sam Vimes had fought back... He got rid of most of the pl plumes and the stupid tights and ended up with a dress uniform that at least looked as though its owner was male. But the helmet had gold decoration and the bespoke armourers had made a new, gleaming breastplate with useless gold ornamentation on it. Sam Vimes felt like a class traitor every time he wore it. He hated being thought of as one of the people that wore stupid ornamental armour. It was guilt by association. He twirled the sprig of lilac in his fingers and smelled again the heady smell. Yes, it hadn't always been like this. Someone had just spoken to him. He looked up. What? he barked. I inquired of her ladyship as well, your grace, said the butler, looking startled. Are you feeling all right, your grace? What? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. So is her ladyship, yes, thank you. I popped in before I went outside. Mrs. Content is with her. She says it won't be for a while. 
"'I have advised the kitchen to have plenty of hot water ready, Your Grace, nevertheless,' said Willikins, helping Vimes on with the guilty breastplate. "'Yes. Why do they need all that water, do you think?' "'I couldn't say, Your Grace,' said Willikins. "'Probably best not to inquire.' Vimes nodded. Sybil had already made it quite clear, with gentle tact, that he was not required on this particular case. It had been, he had to admit, a bit of a relief. He handed Willikins the sprig of lilac. The butler took it without comment, inserted it into a little silver tube of water that would keep it fresh for hours, and fixed it onto one of the breastplate straps. "'Time moves on, doesn't it, Your Grace?' he said, dusting him down with a small brush. Vimes took out his watch. "'It certainly does. Look, I'll drop in at the yard on my way to the palace, sign what needs signing, and I'll be back as soon as possible, all right?' Willikins gave him a look of almost unbutlery concern. "'I'm sure her ladyship will be fine, Your Grace,' he said. "'Of course she is not, um, not—' "'Young,' said Vimes. "'I would say she is richer in years than many other prima gravidia.' "'said Willikins smoothly. "'But she is a well-built lady, if you don't mind me saying so, "'and her family have traditionally had very little trouble in the childbirth department.' "'Prima what?' "'New mothers, Your Grace. "'I'm sure her ladyship would much rather know that you were running after miscreants "'than wearing a hole in the library carpet.' "'I expect you're right, Willikins.' "'Oh, yes, Uh, there's a young lady dog-paddling in the old cesspit, Willikins.' "'Very good, Your Grace. "'I shall send the kitchen-boy down there with a ladder directly. "'The message to the Assassin's Guild? "'Good idea. "'She'll need clean clothes and a bath. "'I think, perhaps, the hose in the old scullery "'might be more appropriate, Your Grace, "'to start with, at least. "'Good point. "'See to it. "'And now I must be off.' "'In the crowded main office of the Pseudopolis Yard watch-house,' Sergeant Colon absent-mindedly adjusted the sprig of lilac that he'd stuck into his helmet like a plume. "'They go very strange, Nobby,' he said, leafing listlessly through the morning's paperwork. "'It's a copper thing. Happened to me when I had kids. You get tough.' "'What do you mean, tough?' said Corporal Nobbs, possibly the best living demonstration that there was some smooth evolution between humans and animals. "'Well,' said Colon, leaning back in his chair, "'it's like... "'Well, when you're our age—' "'He looked at Nobby and hesitated. "'Nobby had been giving his age as probably thirty-four for years. "'The Nobbs family were not good at keeping count. "'I mean, when a man reaches a certain age,' he tried again, "'he knows the world is never going to be perfect. "'He's got used to it being a bit—a bit—' "'Manky?' Nobby suggested. "'Tucked behind his ear in the place usually reserved for his cigarette— was another wilting lilac flower. "'Exactly,' said Colon. "'Lake, it's never going to be perfect, so you just do the best you can, right? "'But when there's a kid on the way, well, suddenly a man sees it different. "'He thinks, my kid's going to have to grow up in this mess, "'time to clean it up, time to make it a better world. "'He gets a bit keen, full of ginger. "'When he is about strong in the arm, it's going to be very hot round here for morning, Mr Vimes.' "'Talking about me, eh?' said Vimes, striding past them as they jerked to attention. He had not, in fact, heard any of the conversation, but Sergeant Colon's face could be read like a book, and Vimes had learned it by heart years ago. "'Just uh, wondering if the heavy event—' Colon began, trailing after Vimes as he took the stairs two at a time. "'It hasn't,' said Vimes shortly. He pushed open the door to his office. "'Morning, Carrot.' 
Captain Carrot sprang to his feet and saluted. Morning, sir, as lady... No, Carrot, she has not. What's been happening overnight? Carrot's gaze went to the sprig of lilac and back to Vimes's face. Nothing good, sir, he said. Another officer killed. Vimes stopped dead. Oh, he demanded. Sergeant strong in the arm, sir. Killed in Treacle Road. Cast her again. Vimes glanced at his watch. They had ten minutes to get to the palace, but time suddenly wasn't important any more. He sat down at his desk. Witnesses? Three this time, sir. That many. All dwarfs. Strong in the arm wasn't even on duty, sir. He'd signed off and was picking up a rat's pie and chips from a shop and walked straight out into Casa. The devil stabbed him in the neck and ran for it. He must have thought we'd found him. We've been looking for the man for weeks, and he bumped into poor old Strong in the arm when all the dwarf was thinking of was his breakfast. His anger on the trail. Up to a point, sir, said Carrot awkwardly. Why only up to a point? He, uh, well, we assume it was Carser, dropped an aniseed bomb in Sator Square, almost pure oil. Vimes sighed. It was amazing how people adapted. The watch had a werewolf. That news had got around, in an underground kind of way, and so the criminals had evolved to survive in a society where the law had a very sensitive nose. Sent bombs were the solution. They didn't have to be that dramatic. You just dropped a little flask of pure peppermint or aniseed in the street where a lot of people would walk over it, and suddenly Sergeant Angua was facing a hundred, a thousand crisscrossing trails and went to bed with a nasty headache. He listened glumly as carrots reported on men brought off leave or put on double shift, on informers pumped, pigeons stooled, grasses rustled, fingers held to the wind, ears put on the street, and he knew how little it all added up to. They still had fewer than a hundred men in the watch, and that was including the canteen lady. There were a million people in the city, and a billion places to hide. Ank Morpork was built of bolt holes. Besides, Casa was a nightmare. Vimes was used to the other kinds of nut jobs, the ones that acted quite normally right up to the point where they hauled off and smashed someone with a poker for blowing their nose noisily, but Casa was different. He was in two minds, but instead of them being in conflict, they were in competition. He had a demon on both shoulders, urging one another on. And yet he smiled all the time, in a cheerful, chirpy sort of way, and he acted like the kind of rascal who made a dodgy living selling gold watches that go green after a week. And he appeared to be convinced, utterly convinced, that he never did anything really wrong. He'd stand there, amid the carnage, blood on his hands and stolen jewellery in his pocket, and with an expression of injured innocence declare, "'Me? What did I do?' And it was believable, right up until you looked deep into those cheeky, smiling eyes and saw, deep down, the demons looking back. But don't spend too much time looking at those eyes, because that'd mean you'd taken your eyes off his hands, and by now one of them held a knife. It was hard for the average copper to deal with people like that. They expected people, when heavily outnumbered, to give in, or to try to deal, or at least just stop moving. They didn't expect people to kill for a five-dollar watch. A hundred-dollar watch, now, that'd be different. This was Ank Morpork, after all. "'Was strong in the arm married?' he said. "'No, sir. Lived in New Cobblers with his parents.' "'Parents,' thought Vimes. That made it worse. "'Anyone been to tell him?' he said. "'And don't say it was Nobby. We don't want any repeat of that bet-you-a-dolly-you're-the-widow-Jackson nonsense.' 
I went, sir, as soon as we got the news. Thank you. They took it badly. They took it solemnly, sir. Vimes groaned. He could imagine the expressions. I'll write them the official letter, he said, pulling open his desk. Get someone to take it round, will you? And say I'll be over later. Perhaps this isn't the time to... Oh, hold on, they were dwarfs. Dwarfs weren't bashful about money. Forget that. Say we'll have all the details of his pension and so on. Died on duty too, that's extra. It all adds up. That'll be theirs. He rummaged in his cupboards. Where's his file? Here, sir, said Carrot, handing it over smoothly. We are due at the palace at ten, sir. Watch committee. But I'm sure they'll understand, he added, seeing Vimes's face. I'll go and clean out Strong in the Arms Locker, sir, and I expect the lads will have a whip round for flowers and everything. Vimes pondered over a sheet of headed paper after the captain had gone. A file. He had to refer to a damned file. But there were so many coppers these days. A whip round for flowers and a coffin. You'd look after your own. Sergeant Dickens had said that a long time ago. He wasn't good with words, least of all ones written down, but after a few glances at the file to refresh his memory, he wrote down the best he could think of. And they were all good words, and more or less they were the right ones. But in truth, Strong in the Arm was just a decent dwarf who was paid to be a copper. He'd joined up because these days joining the watch was quite a good choice of career. The pay was good, there was a decent pension, there was a wonderful medical scheme, if you had the nerve to submit to Eagle's ministrations in the cellar, and, after a year or so, an Ankh-Morpork-trained copper could leave the city and get a job in the watches of other cities in the plain with instant promotion. That was happening all the time. Sammies, they were called, even in towns that had never heard of Sam Vimes. He was just a little proud of that. They meant watchmen who could think without their lips moving, who didn't take bribes much and then only at the level of beer and doughnuts, which even Vimes recognised as the grease that helps the wheels run smoothly, and were, on the whole, trustworthy. For the given value of trust, at least. The sound of running feet indicated that Sergeant Detritus was bringing some of the latest trainees back from their morning run. He could hear the Jody Detritus had taught them. Somehow you could tell it was made up by a troll. Now we sing this stupid song, sing it as we run along. Why we sing this we don't know, we can't make the words rhyme properly. Sound off, one, two, sound off, many, lots, sound off, and uh, what? It still irked Vimes that the little training school in the old lemonade factory was turning out so many coppers who quit the city the moment their probation was up. But it had its advantages. There were Sammies almost as far as Uberwalds now, all speeding up the local promotion ladder. It helped, knowing names and knowing that those names had been taught to salute him. The ebb and flow of politics often meant that the local rulers weren't talking to one another, but via the semaphore towers, the Sammies talked all the time. He realised he was humming a different song under his breath. It was a tune he'd forgotten for years. It went with the lilac, scent and song together. He stopped, feeling guilty. He was finishing the letter when there was a knock at the door. "'Nearly done,' he shouted. "'It's me, Thar.' said Constable Igor, pushing his head around the door, and then he added, "'Igor, sir.' "'Yes, Igor,' said Vimes, wondering not for the first time why anyone with stitches all around his head needed to tell anyone who he was. The Igor employed by the watch as forensic specialist and medical aid was quite young, insofar as you could tell with an Igor, since useful limbs and other organs were passed on among Igors as others might hand on a pocket watch, 
and very modern in his thinking. He had a DA haircut with extended quiff, wore crepe soles, and sometimes forgot to lisp. "'I would just like to say, sir, that I could have got young Strong in the arm back on his feet, sir,' said Igor, a shade reproachfully. Vimes sighed. Igor's face was full of concern, tinged with disappointment. He had been prevented from plying his... craft. He was naturally disappointed. "'We've been through this, Igor. It's not like sewing a leg back on. And dwarfs are dead set against that sort of thing.' "'There's nothing supernatural about it, sir. "'I'm a man of natural philosophy. "'And he was still warm when they brought him in.' "'Those are the rules, Igor. Thanks all the same. "'We know your heart is in the right place.' "'They are in the right places, sir,' said Igor reproachfully. "'That's what I meant,' Vimes said, without missing a beat, "'just as Igor never did.' "'Oh, very well, sir,' said Igor, giving up. "'He paused and then said, "'How is her ladyship, sir?' Vimes had been expecting this. It was a terrible thing for a mind to do, but his had already presented him with the idea of Igor and Sybil in the same sentence. Not that he disliked Igor, quite the reverse. There were watchmen walking around the streets right now who wouldn't have legs if it wasn't for Igor's genius with a needle, but... "'Fine, she's fine,' he said abruptly. "'Only I heard that Mrs. Content was a bit... Wa "'Igor, there are some areas where... "'Look,' "'Do you know anything about women and babies?' "'Not in so many words, sir, "'but I find that once I've got someone on the slab "'and had a good, you know, rummage around, "'I can thought most things.' "'Vimes's imagination actually shut down at this point. "'Thank you, Igor,' he managed, without his voice trembling, "'but Mrs. Content is a very experienced midwife.' "'Just as you say, sir.' said Igor, but doubt rode on the words. "'And now I've got to go,' said Vimes. "'It's going to be a long day.' He ran down the stairs, tossed the letter to Sergeant Colon, nodded to Carrot, and set off at a fast walk for the palace. After the door had shut, one of the watchmen looked up from the desk where he'd been wrestling with the report and the effort of writing down as policemen do what ought to have happened. "'Sarge?' "'Yes, Corporal Ping.' "'Why are some of you wearing purple flowers, Sarge?' "'There was a subtle change in the atmosphere, "'a suction of sound caused by many pairs of ears listening intently. "'All the officers in the room had stopped writing. "'I mean, I saw you and Reg and Nobby wearing them this time last year, "'and I wondered if we were all supposed to,' Ping faltered. "'Sergeant Colon's normally amiable eyes had narrowed, "'and the message they were sending was... "'You're on thin ice, lad, and it's starting to creak.' "'I mean, my landlady's got a garden and I could easily go and cut her,' "'Ping went on, in an uncharacteristic attempt at suicide. "'You'd wear the lilac today, would you?' said Colon quietly. "'I just meant that if you wanted me to, I could go and—' "'Were you there?' said Colon, getting to his feet so fast that his chair fell over. "'Steady, Fred,' murmured Nobby. "'I didn't mean—' Ping began. I mean, was I where, Sarge? Colon leaned on the desk, bringing his round red face an inch away from Ping's nose. If you don't know where there was, you weren't there, he said in the same quiet voice. He stood up straight again. Now, me and Nobby has got a job to do, he said. At ease, Ping. We are going out. Eh? Uh, this was not being a good day for Corporal Ping.
"'Yes,' said Colon. "'As standing orders, Sarge, you're the ranking officer, you see, "'and I'm orderly officer for the day. "'I wouldn't ask otherwise, but if you're going out, Sarge, "'you've got to tell me where you're going, "'just in case anyone has to contact you, see. "'I've got to write it down in the book, in pen and everything,' he added. "'You know what day it is, Ping?' said Colon. "'At 25th of May, Sarge.' "'And you know what that means, Ping?' "'Er, uh, it means,' said Nobby, "'that anyone important enough to ask where we're going?' "'Knows where we've gone,' said Fred Colon. "'The door slammed behind them. "'The cemetery of small gods was for the people "'who didn't know what happened next. "'They didn't know what they believed in "'or if there was life after death, "'and often they didn't know what hit them.' They'd gone through life being amiably uncertain until the ultimate certainty had claimed them at the last. Among the city's bone orchards, the cemetery was the equivalent of the draw-marked misc, where people were interred in the glorious expectation of nothing very much. Most of the watch got buried there. Policemen, after a few years, found it hard enough to believe in people, let alone anyone they couldn't see. For once, it wasn't raining. The breeze shook the sooty poplars around the wall, making them rustle. "'We ought to have brought some flowers,' said Colon as they made their way through the long grass. "'I could nick a few off some of the fresh graves, Sarge,' Nobby volunteered. "'Not the kind of thing I want to hear you saying at this time, Nobby,' said Colon severely. "'Sorry, Sarge.' "'At a time like this a man ought to be thinking of his immortal soul, "'viz ah viz the endless mighty river that is history. "'I should do that if I was you, Nobby.' "'Right, Sarge, will do. "'I see someone's doing it already, Sarge.' "'Up against one wall, lilac trees were growing. "'That is, at some point in the past, "'a lilac had been planted there "'and had given rise, as lilac will, "'to hundreds of whippy suckers, "'so that what had once been one stem was now a thicket. "'Every branch was covered in pale mauve blooms. "'The graves were still just visible in the tangled vegetation.' In front of them stood Cut-Me-Own-Throat Dibbler, Ank Morpork's least successful businessman, with a sprig of lilac in his hat. He caught sight of the watchman and nodded to them. They nodded back. All three stood looking down at the seven graves. Only one had been maintained. The marble headstone on that one was shiny and moss-free. The turf was clipped, the stone border was sparkling. Moss had grown over the wooden markers of the other six, but it had been scraped off the central one, revealing the name John Keel. And, carved underneath by someone who had taken some pains, was How Do They Rise Up? A huge wreath of lilac flowers bound with purple ribbon had been placed on the grave. On top of it, tied around with another piece of purple ribbon, was an egg. Mrs. Palm and Mrs. Batty and some of the girls were up here earlier, said Dibbler. "'And, of course, Madam always makes sure there's the egg.' "'It's nice, the way they always remember,' said Sergeant Colon. "'The three stood in silence. "'They were not, on the whole, men with a vocabulary designed for times like this. "'After a while, though, Nobby felt moved to speak. "'He gave me a spoon once,' he said to the heir in general. "'Yeah, I knew,' said Colon. "'My dad pinched it off me when he came out of prison, but it was my spoon,' said Nobby persistently. "'That means a lot to a kid, your own spoon.' "'Come to that, he was the first person to make me a sergeant,' said Colon. "'Got busted again, of course, but I knew I could do it again then. "'He was a good copper.' 
He bought a pie off me. First week I was starting out, said Dibbler. Ate it all. Didn't spit out anything. There was more silence. After a while, Sergeant Colon cleared his throat, a general signal to indicate that some sort of appropriate moment was now over. There was a general relaxation of muscles. You know, we ought to come up here one day with a billhook and clear this lot up a bit, said the sergeant. You always say that, Sarge, every year, said Nobby as they walked away. And we never do. If I had a dollar for every copper's funeral I've attended up here, said Colon, I'd have nineteen dollars and fifty pence. Fifty pence, said Nobby. That was when Corporal Hildebiddle woke up in just in time and banged on the lid, said Colon. That was before your time, of course. Everyone said it was an amazing recovery. Mr. Sergeant! The three men turned. Coming towards them in a high-speed sidle was the black-clad skinny figure of legitimate first, the cemetery's resident gravedigger. Colon sighed. Yes, Ledgy, he said. Good morrow, sweet, the gravedigger began, but Sergeant Colon waved a finger at him. Stop that right now, he said. You know you've been warned before. None of that comic gravedigger stuff. It's not funny and it's not clever. Just say what you've got to say, no silly bits. Ledgy looked crestfallen. Well, good sirs. Ledgy, I've known you for years, said Colon wearily. Just try, will you? "'The deacon wants them graves dug up, Fred,' said Ledgy in a sulky voice. "'It's more'n been thirty years. "'Long past time they was in the crypts.' "'No,' said Fred Colon. "'But I've got a nice shelf for down there, Fred,' Ledgy pleaded. "'Right up near the front. We need the space, Fred. "'It's standing room only in here, and that's the truth. "'Even the worms have to go in single file. "'Right up near the front, Fred, where I can chat to them when I'm having me tea. "'How about that?' The watchman and Dibbler shared a glance. Most people in the city had been into Ledgy's crypts, if only for a dare, and it had come as a shock to most of them to realise that solemn burial was not for eternity, but only for a handful of years, so that, in Ledgy's words, my little wriggly helpers could do their work. After that, the last, last resting place was the crypts, and an entry in the huge ledgers. Ledgy lived down there in the crypts. As he said, he was the only one who did. And he liked the company. Ledgy was generally considered weird, but conscientiously so. This isn't your idea, right? said Fred Colon. Ledgy looked down at his feet. The new deacon's a bit, well, new, he said. You know, keen, making changes. You told him why they're not being dug up, said Nobby. He said that's just ancient history, said Ledgy. He says we all have to put the past behind us. And did you tell him that he should take it up with veterinary? said Nobby. Yes, and he said he was sure his lordship was a forward-thinking man who wouldn't cling to relics of the past, said Ledgy. Sounds like he is new, said Dibbler. Yeah, said Nobby, and not likely to get old. It's okay, Ledgy, you can say you've asked us. The gravedigger looked relieved. Thanks, Nobby, he said, and I'd just like to say that when your time comes, gents, you'll be on a good shelf with a view. I've put your names down in my ledger for them as comes after me. Will, that's uh, very kind of you, Ledgy, said Colon, wondering if it was. Because of pressures of space, bones in the crypt were stored by size, not by owner. There were rooms of ribs. There were avenues of femurs. 
and shelf after shelf of skulls up near the entrance, of course, because a crypt without a lot of skulls wasn't a proper crypt at all. If some of the religions were right and there really was a bodily resurrection one day, Fred mused, there was going to be an awful lot of confusion and general milling about. "'I've got just a spot,' Ledger began and then stopped. He pointed angrily towards the entrance. "'You know what I said about him coming up here?' They turned. Corporal Reg Shoe, a whole bouquet of lilac tied to his helmet, was walking solemnly up the gravel path. He had a long-handled shovel over his shoulder. "'It's only Reg,' said Fred. "'He's got a right to be here, Ledger, you know that. "'He's a dead man. I'm not having a dead man in my cemetery.' "'It's full of them, Ledger,' said Dibbler, trying to calm the man down. "'Yeah, but the rest of them don't walk in and out.' "'Come on, Ledger, you act like this every year,' said Fred Colon. "'Ye can't help the way he was killed. "'Just because you're a zombie doesn't mean you're a bad person. "'He's a useful lad, Reg. "'Plus, it'd be a lot neater up here if everyone looked after their plots like he does. "'Morning, Reg.' Reg Shoe, grey-faced but smiling, nodded at the four of them and strolled on. "'And bringing his own shovel, too,' muttered Ledgy. "'It's disgusting.' "'I've always thought it was rather, you know, nice of him to do what he does,' said Fred. "'You let him alone, Leggy. "'If you start throwing stones at him like you did the year before last, "'Commander Vimes will get to hear about it, and there'll be trouble. "'Be told. "'You're a good man with a, um, a, um, cadaver,' said Nobby. "'But, well, Leggy, you weren't there,' said Colon. "'That's the start and finish of it. "'Ridge was.' "'That's all there is to it, Ledgy. "'If you weren't there, you don't understand. "'Now you just run along and count the skulls again. "'I know you like that. "'Cheerio, Ledgy.' "'Legitimate first watched them go as they walked away. "'Sergeant Colon felt he was being measured up. "'I've always wondered about his name,' said Nobby, "'turning and waving. "'I mean, legitimate?' "'Can't blame a mother for being proud, Nobby,' said Colon. "'What else should I know today?' said Vimes, as he and Carrot shouldered their way through the streets. "'We've had a letter from the Black Ribboners, sir.' Uh, the Uberwald League of Temperance made up of former vampires who now wore black ribbons to show that they had completely sworn off the sticky stuff. My verd, yes, and much preferred a good sing-song and a healthy game of table tennis. "'A letter from the Black Ribboners, sir, suggesting it would be a great step forward for the species harmony in the city if you'd see a way clear to... They want a vampire in the watch. Yes, sir. I believe many members of the watch committee think that despite your stated reservations, it will be a good... Does it look to you as if my body is dead? No, sir. Then the answer's no. What else? Carrot riffled through a stuffed clipboard as he half ran to keep up. The time says Borogravia has invaded Moldavia, he announced. Is that good? I can't remember where it is. Both formerly part of the Dark Empire, sir, right next door to Uberwald. Oh, side are we on? The Times said we should be supporting little Moldavia against the aggressor, sir. I like Bora Gravia already, snapped Vimes. The Times had printed, in his opinion, a particularly unflattering cartoon of him the previous week, and to make matters worse, Sybil had requested the original and had it framed. And what does all this mean to us? Probably more refugees, sir. Ye. "'Gods, we've got no more room. Why do they keep coming here?' "'In search of a better life, sir, I think. But it's standing room only in some parts of town.' "'I think things are worse where they come from, sir,' said Carrot. "'What kind of refugees are we talking about here?' "'Mostly human, sir.' 
Do you mean that most of them will be human, or that each individual will be mostly human? said Vimes. After a while in Ankh-Morpork, you learned to phrase that kind of question. Er, uh, apart from humans, the only species I'd heard of here in any numbers are the Kvetch, sir. They live in deep woods and are covered in hair. Really? Well, we'll probably find out more about them when we're asked to employ one of them in the watch, said Vimes sourly. What else? Rather hopeful news, sir, said Carrot, smiling. You know the Hooms, the street gang? What about them? They initiated their first troll member. What? I thought they went about beating up trolls. I thought that was the whole point. Well, apparently, young Calcite likes beating up trolls too. And that's good. In a way, sir, I suppose it's a step forward. United in hatred, you mean? I suppose so, sir, said Carrot. He flicked papers back and forth on his clipboard. Now, what else have I got? Oh, yes, the, the river patrol boat has sunk again. Where did I go wrong, thought Vimes as the litany went on. I was a copper once, a real copper. I chased people. I was a hunter. It was what I did best. I knew where I was anywhere in the city by the feel of the street under my boots. And now look at me. A duke, commander of the watch, a political animal. I have to know about who's fighting who a thousand miles away, just in case that's going to mean riots here. When did I last go on patrol? Last week? Last month? And it's never a proper point patrol, because the sergeants make damn sure everyone knows I've left the building, and every damn constable reeks of armour polish and has had a shave by the time I get there, even if I nip down the back streets. And that thought, at least, was freighted with a little pride, because it showed he didn't employ stupid sergeants. I never stand all night in the rain, or fight for my life rolling in the gutter with some thug, and I never move above a walk. That's all been taken away. And for what? Comfort, power, money, and a wonderful wife. Um, which was a good thing, of course, but <clears throat> even so. Damn. But I'm not a copper anymore. I'm a manager. I have to talk to the damn committee as if they're children. I go to receptions and wear damn stupid toy armour. It's all politics and paperwork. It's all got too big. What had happened to the days when it was all so simple? Faded like the lilac, he thought. They entered the palace and went up the main stairs to the oblong office. The patrician of Ankh-Morpork was standing looking out of the window when they entered. The room was otherwise deserted. Ah, Vimes, he said without turning round. I thought you might be late. In the circumstances I dismissed the committee. They were sorry as indeed I was to hear about Strong in the Arm. No doubt you have been writing the official letter... Vimes flashed a questioning expression at Carrot, who rolled his eyes and shrugged. Veterinari found out things very quickly. "'Yeah, that's right,' said Vimes. "'And on such a beautiful day as this, too,' said Veterinari. "'Although there's a storm heading our way, I see.' He turned. He had a sprig of lilac pinned to his robe. "'Lady Sybil is doing well,' he said, sitting down. "'You tell me,' said Vimes. "'Some things can't be hurried, no doubt.' said Vetinari smoothly, shuffling the papers. "'Let me see now, let me see. "'There were just a few points that I should deal with. "'Ah, the regular letter from our religious friends at the Temple of Small Gods.' "'He carefully removed it from the pile and set it to one side. "'I think I shall invite the new deacon to tea and explain matters to him.' 
Now, where was I? Ah, the political situation in... Yes? The door opened. Drumnot, the chief clerk, came in. A message for his grace, he said, although he handed it to Lord Vetinari. The patrician passed it very politely across the desk. Vimes unfolded it. It's off the clacks, he yelled. We've got Carcer cornered in New Hall. I've got to get down there now. How exciting, said Lord Vetinari, standing up suddenly. The call to the chase. But is it necessary for you to attend personally, Your Grace? Vimes gave him a grey look. Yes, he said, because if I don't, you see, some poor sod who's been trained by me to do the right thing is going to try to arrest the bugger. He turned to Carrot. Captain, get on it right now. Clacks, pigeons, runners, whatever. I want everyone answering this shout, OK? But no one, I repeat, no one is to try to tackle him without a lot of backup. Understood? And get Swires airborne. Oh, damn. What's wrong, sir? This message is from Little Bottom. She sent it straight here. What's she doing there? She's forensic. She's not street. She'll do it by the book. Shouldn't she? said Veterinary. No. Carcer needs an arrow in his leg just to get his attention. You shoot first and ask questions later, said Vetinari. Vimes paused at the door and said, There's nothing I want to ask him. Vimes had to slow down for breath in Sater Square, and that was disgusting. A few years ago, he'd only really be getting into his stride by now. But the storm rolling over the plains was driving the heat before it, and it wouldn't do for the commander to turn up wheezing. As it was, even after pausing behind a street market stall for a few gulps of air, he doubted if he had enough wind left for a lengthy sentence. To his tremendous relief, an entirely unwounded Corporal Cheery Littlebottom was waiting by the university walls. She saluted. "'Reporting, sir,' she said. Mm, murmured Vimes. "'I spotted a couple of trolls on traffic duty, sir,' said Cheery, "'so I've sent them around to Waterbridge.' Then Sergeant Detritus turned up and I told I advised him to go into the university by the main gate and get up high. Sergeant Cole on a nobby arrived and I sent them along to the Bridge of Sighs. Why? said Vimes. Because I doubt if he's really going to try going that way, said Cherry, her face a very careful picture. Vimes had to stop himself from nodding. And then as more people came along I'm putting them around the perimeter, but I think he's gone up and he's staying high. Why? "'Because how's he going to fight his way out through a lot of wizards, sir? "'His best chance is to sleek around the roofs and drop down somewhere quiet. "'There's lots of hiding places, and he can get all the way to Peach Pie Street without coming down.' "'Forensic,' thought Vimes. <laughs> "'And with any luck, he doesn't know about Buggy.' "'Well thought out,' he said. "'Thank you, sir. Would you mind standing a bit closer to this wall, sir?' "'What for?' "'Something shattered on the cobbles. "'Vimes was suddenly flat against the wall.' "'He's got a crossbow, sir,' said Cherry. "'We think he stole it from Strong in the Arm, but he's not very good with it.' "'Well done, Corporal,' said Vimes weakly. "'Good job.' He glanced around the square behind him. The wind was whipping at the awnings of the market stalls, and the traders, with occasional looks at the sky, were covering their wares. "'But we can't just let him hang around up there,' he went on. "'He'll start taking pot shots, and he's bound to hit someone.' "'Why would he do that, sir?' "'Carcer doesn't need a reason,' said Vimes.' He just needs an excuse. A movement far above caught his eye and he grinned. A large bird was gaining height over the city. The heron, mumbling complaints, fought for altitude in big sweeping circles. The city whirled around Corporal Buggy Swires as he gripped even harder with his knees and he swung the bird downwind and it landed with a staggering run on top of the Tower of Art, the highest building in the city. 
With a practised movement, the gnome sliced through the string holding the portable semaphore in place, and leapt down after it onto the compost of ivy leaves and old raven's nests that carpeted the top of the tower. The heron watched him with round-eyed stupidity. Buggy had tamed it in the usual gnome way. You painted yourself green like a frog, and hung out in the marshes, croaking, and then when a heron tried to eat you, you ran up the beak and nutted it. By the time it came around, you'd blown the special oil up its nostrils. That had taken all day to make, and the stink of it had emptied the watch-house, and it took one look at you and thought you were its mum. A heron was useful. It could carry equipment. But Buggy preferred a sparrow-hawk for traffic patrol. It was better for hovering. He slotted the portable semaphore arms onto the post he'd secretly installed weeks ago. Then he unshipped a tiny telescope from the heron's saddlebags and strapped it onto the edge of the stone, looking almost straight down. Buggy liked moments like this. It was the only time that everyone else was smaller than him. "'Now let's see what we can see,' he muttered. There were the university buildings, there was the clock tower of old Tom and the unmistakable bulk of Sergeant Detritus climbing amongst the nearby chimneys. The yellow light of the gathering storm glinted off the helmets of watchmen who were hurrying through the streets, and there, creeping along behind the parapet, Gotcha, he said quietly, and reached for the handles of the semaphore. D-T-R-T-S space, H-D-N-G space, O-L space T-M, said Cheery. Vimes nodded. Detritus was on the roof near the Tower of Old Tom, and Detritus carried a siege crossbow that three men couldn't lift, and had converted it to fire a thick sheaf of arrows all at once. Mostly they shattered in the air because of the forces involved, and the target was hit by an expanding cloud of burning splinters. Vimes had banned him from using it on people. But it was a darn good way of getting into buildings. It could open the front door and the back door at the same time. "'Tell him to fire a warning shot,' he said. "'If he hits Carson with that thing, we won't even find a corpse.' "'Though I'd quite like to find a corpse,' he added to himself. "'Yes, sir.' Cheery pulled a couple of white-painted paddles out of her belt, sighted on the top of the tower and sent a brief signal. There was an answering signal from the distant buggy. "'D-T-R-T-S space, W-R-N-G space, S-H-D,' Cheery muttered to herself as she waved the rest of the message. There was another answering dip from above. A moment later, a red flare shot up from the top of the tower and exploded. It was an efficient way of getting everyone to pay attention. Then Vimes saw the message relayed. Around the university buildings, watchmen who'd also seen the order ducked into doorways. They knew about the bow. There were a few seconds for the troll to work out the spelling, a distant heavy thud, a sound like a swarm of hellish bees, and then a crash of tiles and masonry. Pieces of tile rained down into the square, an entire chimney, still with a wisp of smoke coming from it, smashed down a few yards from where Vimes was standing. Then there was the patter of dust and small bits of wood, and a gentle shower of pigeon feathers. Vimes shook some flakes of mortar off his helmet. "'Yes, well, I think he's been warned,' he said. Half a weathercock landed next to the chimney. Cheery blew some feathers off a telescope and sighted on the top of the tower again. "'Buggy says he's stopped moving, sir,' she reported. "'Really, you surprise me.' Vimes adjusted his belt. "'And now you can give me a crossbow. I'm going up. "'Sir, you said no one was to try to arrest him. "'That's why I sent the signal to you.' "'That's right.' 
I'm going to arrest him. Right now. While he's counting all his bits to check he's still got them. Tell detritus what I'm doing, because I don't want to end up as £160 of cocktail delicacies. No, don't keep opening your mouth like that. By the time we've sorted out back up an armour and got everyone lined up, it'll have dug in somewhere else. The last words were delivered at a run. Vimes reached the door and darted inside. New Hall was student accommodation, but it was still only half past ten, so most of them would be in bed. A few faces looked around doors, and Vimes trotted along the corridor and reached the stairwell at the far end. That took him, walking now and rather less sure of his future, to the top floor. Let's see, he'd been here before. Yes, there was a door ajar, and a glimpse of mops and buckets suggested that this was a janitor's cupboard, with, at the far end, a ladder leading up to the roof. Vimes carefully cocked the crossbow. So, Carser had a watch crossbow too. They were good classic single-shot models, but they took a while to reload. If he fired at Vimes and missed, then that was the only shot he'd get. After that, you couldn't plan. Vimes climbed the ladder and the song came back. They rise feet up, feet up, feet up, he hissed under his breath. He stopped just below the edge of the open trapdoor onto the leads. Carser wouldn't fall for the old helmet-on-stick trick, not with just one shot available. He'd just have to risk it. Vimes thrust his head up, turned it quickly, ducked out of sight for a moment, and then came through the opening in a rush. He rolled clumsily when he hit the leads and rose into a crouch. There was no one else there. He was still alive. He breathed out. A sloping, gabled roof rose up beside him. Vimes crept along, wedged himself against a chimney stack peppered with splinters of wood, and glanced up at the tower. The sky above it was livid blue-black. Storms picked up a lot of personality as they rolled across the plains, and this one looked like a record-breaker. But brilliant sunlight picked out the Tower of Art, and at the top, the tiny dots of Buggy's frantic signal. O. 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 Officer in trouble. A brother is hurting. Vimes spun round. There was no one creeping up on him. He eased himself around the chimneys, and there, tucked between another couple of stacks and out of sight of everyone except Vimes and the celestial Buggy, was Carsa. He was taking aim. Vimes turned his head to spot the target. Fifty yards away, Carrot was picking his way across the top of the university's high-energy magic building. The bloody fool was never any good at concealment. Though he ducked and crept, and against all logic that made him look more noticeable. He didn't understand the art of thinking himself invisible. And there he was, furtively schlepping through the debris on the roof and looking as visible as a big duck in a small bathtub. And he'd come up without backup. The fool. Carser was aiming carefully. The roof of the HEM was a maze of abandoned equipment and Carrot was moving along behind the raised platform that held the huge bronze spheres known throughout the city as the Wizard's Balls, which discharged surplus magic if or, more usually, when, experiments in the hall below fouled up. Carrot, screened by all that, was not making a good target. Vimes raised his crossbow. Thunder rolled. It was the roll of a giant iron cube down the stairways of the gods, a crackling, thudding crash that tore the sky in half and shook the building. Carsa glanced up and saw Vimes. "'What you doing, mister?' 
Buggy didn't budge from the telescope. A crowbar wouldn't have separated them at this point. "'Shut up, you daft cobbies!' he muttered. Both men below had fired, and both men had missed because they were trying to fire and dodge at the same time. Something hard prodded Buggy's shoulder. "'What's happening, mister?' said the insistent voice. He turned. There were a dozen bedraggled ravens behind him, looking like old men in ill-fitting black cloaks. They were the Tower of Art birds. Hundreds of generations of living in a highly charged magical environment had raised the intelligence level of what had been bright creatures to begin with. But although the ravens were intelligent, these weren't hugely clever. They just had a more persistent kind of stupidity, as befitted birds for whom the exciting panorama of the city below was a kind of daytime TV. "'Push off!' shouted Buggy, and turned back to the telescope. There was Carser running, and Vimes running after him, and here came the hail. It turned the world white. It thudded around him and made his helmet ring. Hailstones as big as his head bounced on the stone and hit Buggy from underneath, cursing and shielding his face with his arms, and hammered all the time by shattering crystal balls, each one predicting a future of pain. He skidded and slid across the rolling ice. He reached an ivy-hung arch between two lesser turrets, where the heron had already taken refuge, and fell inside. Frozen shrapnel still ricocheted in and stung him, but at least he could see and breathe. A beak prodded him sharply in the back. "'What's happening now, mister?' Carser landed heavily on the arch between the student hall and the main buildings, almost lost his footing on the tiles and hesitated. An arrow from a watchman below grazed his leg. Vimes dropped down behind him just as the hail hit. Cursing and slipping, one man followed the other across the arch. Carser reached a mass of ivy that led up onto the roof of the library and scrambled up it, scattering ice below. Vimes grabbed the ivy just as Carser disappeared onto the flat roof. He looked around at a crash behind him and saw Carrot trying to make his way along the wall from the High Energy Magic Building. The hail was forming a halo of ice fragments around him. "'Stay there!' Vimes bellowed. Carrot's reply was lost in the noise. Vimes waved his arms and then grabbed at the ivy as a foot slipped. "'Bloody stay there!' he yelled. "'That is an order! You'll go over!' He turned and started up the wet, cold vines. The wind dropped and the last few hailstones bounced off the roof. Vimes stopped a few feet from the top of the ivy, worked his feet into firm footholds in the ancient knotted stems and reached up for a decent hold. Then he thrust himself up, left hand ready, caught the boot that swung towards him and carried on rising, pushing Carser off balance. The man sprawled backwards on the slippery hail, tried to get onto his feet and slipped again. Vimes tugged himself onto the roof, stepped forward and found his legs skidding away beneath him. Both he and Carser got up, tried to move and fell over again. From a prone position, the man landed a kick on Vimes's shoulder, sending both of them sliding away in opposite directions, and then turned over and scuttled on all fours around the library's big glass and metal dome. He grabbed the rusty frame, hauled himself upright, and pulled out a knife. "'Come and get me, then,' he said. There was another roll of thunder. "'I don't have to,' said Vimes. "'I just have to wait.' "'At least until I get my breath back,' he thought. "'Why are you picking on me? What am I supposed to have done?' "'Couple of murders ring a bell,' said Vimes. "'If injured innocence was money, Carser's face was his fortune.' "'I don't know anything about... "'I'm not up here to play games, Carson. Knock it off.' "'You going to take me alive, Your Grace?' "'You know, I don't want to. "'But people think it's neater all round if I do.' 
There was a clattering of tiles away on the left, and a thud as a huge siege bow was rested on the ridge of a nearby roof. The head of Detritus arose behind it. "'Sorry about that, Mr Vimes. Hard to climb up in dat hail. Just stand back.' "'You're going to let it shoot me?' said Carser. He tossed the knife away. "'Unarmed man!' "'Trying to escape,' said Vimes. But this was starting to go bad. He could feel it. "'Me? Oh, I'm just standing here. <laughs> and there it was, that bloody laugh on top of that damned grin. It was never far away.' Ha-ha didn't come close to doing it the injustice it deserved. It was more a sort of a modulation to the voice, an irritatingly patronising chortle that suggested that all this was somehow funny and you hadn't got the joke. Trouble was, you couldn't shoot someone for having an annoying laugh, and he was just standing there. If he ran, you could shoot him. Admittedly, it would be detritus doing the shooting, and while with that bow it was technically possible to shoot to wound... The people you were wounding would probably be in the building next door. But Carcer was just waiting there, insulting the world by his existence. In fact, he wasn't merely standing there now. In one movement he'd swung himself onto the lower slopes of the library's dome. The glass panes, at least the glass panes that had survived the freak hail, creaked in the iron framework. Stop right there, Vines bellowed, and come down. Now where could I go? said Carcer, grinning at him. I'm just waiting for you to arrest me, right? Hey, I can see your house from up here. What's under the dome, thought Vimes. How high are the bookcases? There's other floors in the library, aren't there? Like galleries. But you can definitely look up at the dome from the ground floor, right? If you were careful, could you swing onto a gallery from the edge of the dome? It'd be risky, but if a man knew he was going to swing anyway... Picking his way with care, he reached the edge of the dome. Carser climbed up a little further. I warn you, Carser. Only I spirits, Mr Grace. <laughs> Can't blame a man for trying to enjoy his last few minutes of freedom, can you? I can see your house from up here. Vimes hauled himself onto the dome. Carser cheered. Well done, you Vimes, he said, easing himself towards the top. Don't mess me about, Carser. It'll go badly for you. "'Badder than it's going to go anyway?' Carser glanced down through a smashed pane. "'Long way down, Mr Vimes. "'I reckon a man'd die instantly falling all that way, wouldn't he?' Vimes glanced down, and Carser leapt. It didn't go the way he'd planned. Vimes had been tensed for something like this. After a complicated moment, Carser was lying on the iron latticework, one arm under him, the other outflung and being banged heavily on the metal by Vimes. The knife it had held skidded away down the dome. "'God, you must think I'm stupid,' Vimes growled. "'You wouldn't throw away a knife, Carser, if you didn't have another one.' Vimes's face was close to the man's now, close enough to look into the eyes above that chirpy grin and watch the demons waving. "'You're hurting me, and that's not allowed.' "'Oh, I wouldn't want anything to happen to you, Carser,' said Vimes. "'I want to see you in front of his lordship. "'I just want to hear you admit something for once. "'I just want to see that bloody, cheeky grin wiped off your face.' Sergeant Detritus, sir, shouted the troll from his distant ridge. Make a signal. I want people up here now. Me and Carser are just going to stay nice and quiet here, so he doesn't try any tricks. Right, sir. With another distant clatter of doomed tiles, the troll disappeared from view. You shouldn't have sent Captain Carrot away, muttered Carser. He doesn't like watchmen bullying innocent civilians. 
It is true that he has yet to master some of the finer details of de facto street policing, said Vimes, maintaining his grip. Anyway, I'm not hurting you, I'm protecting you. Wouldn't like you to fall all that way. Thunder rumbled again. The sky wasn't just storm black now. There were pinks and purples in the clouds, as though the sky was bruised. Vimes could see the clouds moving like snakes in a sack to an endless, sullen rumbling. He wondered if the wizards had been messing about with the weather. Something was happening to the air. It tasted of burned metal and flints. A weathercock on top of the dome began to spin round and round. "'I didn't think you were stupid, Mr Vimes.' "'What?' said Vimes, looking down suddenly. Carser was smiling cheerfully. "'I said, I didn't think you were stupid, Mr Vimes. I know a clever copper like you would think I'd got two knives.' "'Yeah, right.' said Vimes. He could feel his hair trying to stand on end. Little blue caterpillars of light were crackling over the ironwork of the dome and even over his armour. Mr Vimes? What? Vimes snapped. Smoke was rising from the weathercock's bearings. I got three knives, Mr Vimes, said Carser, bringing his arm up. The lightning struck. End of CD 1